the West Slot Pirates, and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports, with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above, as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John McComb. And I'm Eric Skoskowsbo. Oh, well, guys, with the Super Bowl uh, this past weekend, um, I, I guess we can put a bow on professional football, kind of? I mean... Uh, NFL is done. College football has been done for a little while. We got the Association of American Football kicking off this weekend, which I want to talk a little bit about. That's just more from an entertainment aspect, I think. But, uh, let, let's talk about the Super Bowl. Um, you know, I, I, I know our, our buddy Chris Giannini over at Winning Cures Everything, who, uh, we had on the pod last week might disagree, but, oh, that was a brutal Super Bowl. I'm just, it, it was boring. And it's like, I, I, I appreciate a good defensive battle, but that wasn't a good defensive battle. That was just poor offense up until the Pats got a drive going late and it was, yeah, rough. It was I, rough. Yeah. I, and I think that's, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it as boring. I would characterize it as poorly played. Um, and that, that kind of goes on, on, on both sides. So obviously the Patriots won. They, they, significantly outplayed the Rams. Um, both defenses were doing well, but at the same time, like th- this was not the Tom Brady nor the Jared Goff that we saw the week prior in or two weeks prior in the conference championship games. Um, Goff's accuracy was horrible. Uh, he was now granted. He was playing a defense that was doing a really good job disguising things and, and confusing the hell out of him. Um, but this, some of the same stuff was happening on the other side, and, and Brady was missing guys here and there, and it just it just was not a well executed thing. And then I like the I think maybe the, even the bigger problem for me is that um, the Rams just got so outcoached, and I think they got lost in the moment and got caught up in a you know a well, what we're doing right now isn't quite working, but we're also not getting beat really badly. So maybe we keep going and hope something works. And, and they almost got there in the fourth quarter, but it just like neither team seemed to really like exert their will. And we are left with, with a bit of a dud. Yeah. I think part of it for me is with the Pats, it's not like they were this unbelievable offensive football team all year. I mean, they had their moments, but this is the team. They no longer have Josh Gordon, who was a huge part of their offense for a big part of the season, right? I mean, it's like Gronk isn't what he once was. Edelman was fantastic, I mean, to his credit, um, and was a big part of it. But it's like they're a team with a lot of pieces, and of course they have Tom Brady, but it's like if you would have told me, well, the Pats aren't going to have a great offensive game in this, I'd be like, well, you know, Time comes for everybody, and they were playing against a great defensive line, and I could see it. The Rams just, like, they just didn't get off the bus. Like, what was that? They well, were— we, we we talked about Gurley being, like, the question is, if he was if he could be himself and, and look like he did it in the season, that was, that was what they needed, and then he wasn't there, and that, like, everything I, fell apart. It's like, I don't—I don't bet— but in hindsight, if I, you know, were I to be a better or were to have any regrets about not betting, it would be to have shorted every possible thing involving Todd Gurley that there was to short. Um, I just, the whole lead up, it wasn't just that he hadn't played much in the preceding two games. It was just like every vibe coming off of him was like, I'm not right and I'm not going to be a factor in this game. And then that's exactly what happened. Um, 
And I just I remember like media day we talked about it on the last pod, but he couldn't have given a worse perception to all of us of where he was heading into this game. But I mean that's that's just one guy. I mean the the Ringer and you know ESPN and who knows how many other places did all these deep breakdowns of the Rams schemes and just how good they are at what they do and utilizing play action and running, you know, a group of plays, but disguising them with shifting formations and all these things. And it all just amounted to nothing during the game. And uh, it was one of those things that it was, it was so bad that it has you looking ahead to next season and being like, so like, are they going to go back to being good or like, like what the heck happened? I don't know. It was, yeah, that was my big takeaway. It was just like the Rams just, not even showing up and and yeah just giving us all a disappointing game i think the thing that i loved was the fact that the uh ratings in in new orleans were just terrible like new orleans right. they, they kept it up they did not watch the game and i you gotta wonder would this game have been different if it was drew Brees and the saints there instead of the rams um i don't know i mean i the saints offense is every bit as potent as the Rams uh, throughout the season. But you know, even the Saints, though, had started falling off a little bit uh, down the stretch. So I don't know, you know. I I don't think it would have been dramatically different and except for one thing, and that's that Sean Payton would have had a counterpunch. And for whatever reason, the Rams didn't – they weren't prepared for one. Like, like – the way Belichick has operated for years now is he takes away the thing that you want to do and he took away their play action. Um, actually the, there's a really good, uh, write up I read online and I'm totally blanking on where I saw it. Um, but it was a film breakdown of what the Patriots did. They ran a six, one defense, like a six, one defensive front. So they basically put six people on the line of scrimmage and that was to clog all of the holes so that when Gurley did get the ball, he he went nowhere. Same thing with C.J. Anderson. And then they played soft zone coverage on the back end um, to to keep everything in front of them and take away the, the Rams' big play. They, they basically took away everything that the Rams do with the use of um, motion and movement. They shut down with the six men on the front line. They shut down the jet sweep. They shut down a couple other uh, of things that the Rams like to do at the line of scrimmage. And they ignored all the kind of disguising that, that the Rams did because it didn't matter for what they were playing defensively. Um, a lot of teams try to pattern match against uh, against the Rams, and, and the Patriots didn't even bother. Um, so there was some really smart game planning there, right? You could argue they might have done the same thing against the Saints, thinking about Alvin Kumara and how strong of a runner he was and then the need to keep um, Thomas in front of you, etc. But breeze against a zone um that's that's probably not going to last very long and then you got to think that sean payton would have had a counter and would have gone to that counter sooner and more aggressively at the same time you just you just don't know um it's it's well i I think we would have seen a better matchup um well well kind of as a related aspect too if you look at that saints rams game the Saints, I mean, the short, easy answer is that the Rams made it to the Super Bowl because of that horrible call. But the real reason... P.S. The Patriots made it to the Super Bowl because somebody lined up offsides. Yeah. Right. But it's like the real reason that the that the Saints should have gone to the Super Bowl instead of the Rams is that the Rams played like garbage in the first half of that game. And basically it's like 
of the f- last four halves of Ram football, the Rams have played awful in three of them. And I'm kind of like, where it's like that team that just kicked the crap out of everybody is rapidly fading into the rearview mirror. And I'm like, God, like, what the heck? Like, did like, was there just a point where suddenly people figured out what this team wants to do? I don't know. Um, but to to be fair though, the Saints played like crap in the second half. Oh yeah, game, yeah. So. No, exactly. No, exactly. And then it was like a push. But it's like you know, if the Rams hadn't gone, they would have their first half performance to blame for it. So you know, I, you know, th- this this whole playoff, especially on the NFC side, is a lot of you know what ifs, right? Say Cody Parkey doesn't double doink that uh, field goal at the end, and it's Bears Rams instead of Rams Cowboys. That all of a sudden is really, really interesting. Um, you know, what if the pass interference was called? What if D4 doesn't line up offsides? You know, up until the Super Bowl, the playoffs were really, really interesting and, and were pretty captivating. But I guess uh, that's, just such a that, dud to finish it off. That's your silver lining, I guess, if you're the NFC. There's a heck of a lot of teams that can do things next year. I'm, I'm certainly not feeling like the Rams are going to be lording over that side of the conference next year. No. So uh, what's, what's interesting to me is that like we've we've kind of been spoiled by the Super Bowl itself in the last I'll I'll call it ten years. That's that's just like a rough figure. I don't know. I don't want. I don't know what the number actually is. But when I think about when I think about growing up, the '80s, the '90s even into the early 2000s the super bowl sucked every year it was it was almost always a giant lopsided blowout and uh, up until 97 98 yeah those those were good but then didn't well then yeah rams um titans was really good and rams patriots uh, was really good rams patriots was good the, the patriots had a lot of good close Super Bowls. I, I guess the the Tampa Raiders one was a little rough. There was a yeah. a Ravens Giants game that was not oh, that God. good. That you know the we Ravens. all we all try to forget. Yeah. So so I mean it's it's been a, I, but obviously I mean, even like the the last five years. I mean the uh, the the Patriots Eagles was a great game. The Patriots Falcons was a great game. Um, Patriots Seahawks was a great game. Um, Broncos Panthers was. More on the lines of this game, it just, you know, and I, I say that from a global perspective, obviously for me, that was a fantastic game. But, uh, you know, just like the past five, ten years have been really, really entertaining Super Bowls. And yeah, this year just kind of wasn't. And and my my recollection growing up was always that the Super Bowl is crap. It, like that it was the it was the AFC and NFC championship games that were that were always the best. And then whether it was because of the two weeks or because just invariably you had a team that got through on one side and then a powerhouse on the other. Um, I mean, it was always, know, it like, was always the NFC that was better than the AFC. I mean, yeah, the NFC won yeah, what, like yeah. 14 straight, I think in the eighties and early nineties. Yeah. They were <laughs> between giants, Redskins, Niners and Cowboys. Uh, and then that one bears team pretty good. Yeah. Um, but so like to me, like, so for me, a crappy Super Bowl is kind of like whatever. I mean, they, I, I, honestly, for me, it's very much a cultural event. Um, I've never seen my team play in it, unfortunately. Um, they've been there. They've never won, which is <laughs> – if you listen to last week's podcast, you heard me get a bit salty about Minnesota Vikings uh, lore. But um, point being, like – for you know, for me, it's it, I get into the commercials. I'm I'm always evaluating halftime. Like I can get a lot out of the Super Bowl, even if it's a even if it's a dud uh, on the field. 
So I don't know. This just this just kind of felt normal to me, even though it's been out of sync with the last fifteen years or so. Yeah. So I I, I don't I don't want to dwell on it too much more, but I I do want to make just brief mention. Um, you know, this year brings the return of spring football. Uh, with the uh, the AAF coming back, uh, starting up this weekend, eight team league. Um, you know they got some really interesting names, and I know they've been trying to brand themselves as a a, devel- a developmental league for the NFL, something that NFL Europe used to be. But you've got uh, these eight teams. You got uh, what is it? Atlanta, Memphis, Birmingham, Orlando, uh, in the East, Salt Lake, San Antonio, San Diego, and Arizona in the West. Um, some real interesting names uh, as a part of it. You know, you got Mike Singletary coaching the Memphis team. Steve Spurrier is coaching Orlando. Um, Mike Martz is coaching San uh, San Diego. Mike Riley in San Antonio. So, uh, you know, some interesting you know, kind of quarterbacks you got in Memphis. Uh, both Christian Hackenberg and Zach Mettenberger uh, together there in, in Memphis. Um, so it, it's... It's going to be interesting, and you know, as, as someone who uh, covered XFL v v one point um, you know, almost twenty years ago, it's going to be really interesting to see spring football, and you know, to have this uh, this kind of trying to be a developmental league as opposed to what Vince McMahon was doing, you know, back in two thousand one, um, with just trying to beat the NFL, which just was never going to happen. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens here. And then next year, uh, when XFL 2.0 comes back, uh, so they sort of made, you know, took some headlines today with the announcement that Bob Stoops was going to be, uh, coming out of retirement to coach and GM the, uh, the Dallas XFL team. Uh, so that, that'll be, that'll be interesting kind of to see what the XFL looks like. But I, I just briefly wanted to talk to you guys about some of the, the changes on the field that, um, the AAF is bringing. Uh, Can we just talk about some more of the names? First? Sure, absolutely, um, absolutely. Rick Neuheisel coaching yeah. Arizona. Apparently, Brad Childress was coaching Atlanta, but then he resigned. He's been replaced with Kevin Coyle. Who, like, what's what's going to be fascinating to me is the if if there's ever a true and I, I I'm going to wait until I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm I'll believe it when I see it from the XFL because their initial version was. Yes, it was good and it was fine, but um, and there were a couple of guys that made the jump. But I don't, I don't. Nobody ever really took them seriously for a lot of different reasons. Um, and ah, they did not. They, the, they they weren't to be. They didn't try to be taken seriously. I mean, they were trying yeah. to be uh, WWE, and they didn't get the TV thing right, and a whole lot of other reasons. But when you like Michael Vick is an offensive coordinator for Atlanta, not anymore. You've got but that that he apparently just left uh, today or yesterday, but. Yes, oh, he, he was he was involved. Well, anyway, like I just there's going to be some just really interesting. Like obviously, Steve Sprayer is not going to go bounce back up to the NFL. Rick Newhiles, New Newhiles, Rick Newheisel isn't either. But when you look at a guy like Kevin Coyle, who spent a lot of time with uh, with Cincinnati, he's he's not that old. Like th- there's going to be some interesting potential for some of these guys to bounce back up. And then the other thing that's fascinating is is just the local nature of some of the players. It's like Aaron Murray is a quarterback on the Atlanta team. He played for Georgia in college. You've got on on the Birmingham Iron Birmingham Iron, and this is totally not surprising. You've got Blake Sims and Trent Richardson, uh, both guys that played at Alabama. Uh, so I just like I think it's really fascinating. You you mentioned um, Zach Mettenberger 
and, and Memphis. Like, I, it, it, that's going to be a really fun aspect where they've they've found some ways to get some some local names that are important, you know, uh, on these squads to help drive interest. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how they play too. That that was actually a big thing is the fact that they, you know, each team was kind of given a region of players to come from. So, you know, it makes sense that, you know, there's a lot of Alabama guys on the Birmingham team. You know, we got a lot of West Coast guys on San Diego and Arizona and uh, Salt Lake City. So that that really kind of does make sense. And as, so, like, as a dovetail, too, just in case anyone's wondering, no Northwestern guys. Um, we ch- I checked the rosters. Uh, no Wildcats. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily yet, will yet. be yet. Yet, but <laughs> but maybe we'll get a couple in there. Be cool. Um, I want to say my my big contribution to this conversation is I I love a couple of these helmets. There are a couple sweet looks. San Diego Fleet. Uh, first of all, that's a great name. It's a great helmet. Anytime there's a battleship on your helmet, I'm a fan. Um, and then the Stallions, Salt Lake Stallions. I'm loving the look of their helmets. Chrome and powder blue. It's, it's a nice look. Like, like to your point about the rosters and stuff, like, real effort has been put into these teams. Like, nice uniforms, legit players, legit coaches. Like, people are really trying to make a go of this. And you could see, you know, if one of these teams takes off, a couple of these players take off, uh, people might get behind this thing. So speaking of getting behind this thing, I feel like we need to pick teams uh, and and just fleet, <laughs> <laughs> and not not like not like you know we're not going to podcast on this stuff super crazy, but um, we just keep up with it a little bit during the year. I think that'd be a lot of fun. So I mean, for me, I, I you know I am almost obligated to take San Antonio um, just because my wife is from San Antonio, um, so there's some ob- uh, marital obligations there, but. You know, Salt Lake is right next to Colorado. So, you know, between San Antonio and Salt Lake, th- those are going to be my my two that I'm kind of in Well, on. they're the they're the Stallions, Sammy, too. Which Very close like to the Broncos. Of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, uh, I'll, I'll ride for the fleet. I'm just uh, – I'm all about a battleship. Battleship right should, should just roll right over everybody. So, I'm in. And speaking which... of which – which team has the purple helmet with the crown? I can't. That's I, the I can't. Uh, Atlanta. That's the Legends. Atlanta right, Legends. I'm, I'm in on the Atlanta Legends. Uh, I just, the one thing I will say is the fleet, you have a battleship on your helmet. How you don't have the battleship Lorenzen as your quarterback. <laughs> that's a missed so, opportunity. So, sadly, um, Jared Lorenzen who who we referred to as the walrus in college. Um, I just I just don't think he's in his prime anymore. <laughs> yeah. I actually think he, I had, think he was having some serious medical issues. Um, oh, if, I, if I remember uh, reading I that, not. but uh, yeah. yeah. Well. Real quick before we get off, I, I do want to mention a couple of the rule changes. Um, basically, they there there's no kicking extra points. You have to go for two after every touchdown. There's no kickoffs. You get the ball on the 25-yard line unless you want to try an onside kick, in which point you're getting like a fourth and 12 from the 30-yard line, uh, from you know, your own like 30-yard line, something like that. Um, you know, they're cutting down on, on TV timeouts. The 40-second clock is a 35-5-second clock. Um, so th- the whole idea is to kind of keep things moving faster and faster and faster. Smart. 
Yeah, it all sounds great. I mean, things like this, it's it's the really one of the only ways you can get the NFL to improve. And we saw it with the XFL, joke as it was, led to several, the overhead cam being the biggest thing, um, that people, like, you need competition. And the NFL has just hege- this uh, hegemony over the whole thing. And, you know, if these, if any of these ideas takes off, it's ultimately going to improve the NFL. So here's hoping. What one, hey, speaking, speaking of that extra point thing, that was, that was a, a clear omission from our discussion about college overtime last week. And if you're, and I was thinking about it as I was re-listening to our podcast, like, gosh, if you want to fix college overtime, one of the best ways to do it is to avoid college overtime and just get rid of extra points. And I, I imagine, a third of overtime games that happened last year wouldn't happen just because of, of college kickers. Um, one one uh, last uh, note is that they're going to have a an official in the press box. So like a kind of a sky judge is what they're calling it. And that's someone who can make instant calls on blatant misses. So, you know, a bad pass interference uh, call um you know, a, a targeting penalty that that's not seen. You've got an official watching the game live that can immediately radio down and say, no, there's a penalty that needs to be called here. So I'm definitely interested to see how that kind of plays. And, you know, if, if the Saints will be bellowing for that from the rooftops, uh, you know, moving forward. They should really call it Sky Marshall instead of Sky <laughs> <laughs> That would be great. And the like final point, the commissioner of the AAF, I mean, I don't know who it is, but it's not Roger Goodell. So not <laughs> not Roger Goodell is the commissioner of this league. So he's, it's got that going for What's it. actually really cool, Oliver Luck is the commissioner of the XFL. Really? Yeah. Oh, of the XFL. Which is, XFL, yeah. Which he's he's not only is he not, yeah, not Roger Goodell, he's actually Oliver Luck, which is great. Um, so yeah, I, but again, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll definitely be sampling this, um, which in, and in interest of a transition, well, actually, actually, before we transition, I, the, um, the CEO is Charlie Ebersol, uh, Dick, Dick Ebersol's son, uh, former president of NBC, who is big in the, uh, XFL version one. You got Bill Polian, uh, as the head of football. Troy Polamalu, head of play, player relations. Heinz Ward, head of football development. Um, so you got you got some big names uh, that that are you know taking part in kind of the upper echelon of things. So you know, Polian, he's definitely got some cred for for a uh, league that doesn't have a Pittsburgh team. That's a heck of a lot of Steelers in the uh, in the leadership, which is kind of interesting too. Um, but, um, but anyway, w- w- like I was saying, I, I, I'm, I'm of- trying, I'm trying to postpone this inevitable <laughs> discussion as long as possible. Hey, no. Oh <laughs> God. The, it, w- let's put it this way. We're all going to be looking for something that we can enjoy watching because hoops ain't it right now. Ugh, sigh. Yeah. After, um, you know, our, our discussion last week for, you know, the, the men's team to just come out and lay an egg against a Penn State team that hadn't won a Big Ten game yet. I, I mean, there's there's some serious issues. And, I, I mean, you're trying to trying to run a season without a point guard. And it had kind of worked 
but now, I mean, it's getting pretty clear. Not having anyone to distribute the ball, you know, and defenses are keying in on pardon and law. And if those two guys aren't hitting, then the offense just is not working. Yeah, and you know, it's it's one of those things where this has been a problem pretty much all year. Um, a lot of the time we've kind of covered over the gaps with defense and we've said before, and we'll say again, this is a good defensive basketball team, but the DePaul game, um, on December 8th is the only game Northwestern has played against a major conference opponent this season where we've scored 70 points. Um, and in reality, this is a team that has trouble getting over 60 points against major conference opponents. And that is just not going to get it done. I mean, Penn State being the example, Penn State had a bad offensive game and won by seven. And, you know, it's there. On one hand, you can look at the rest of the schedule and say it's not terrifying. But on the other hand, you can look at every team and say that in theory, they're all better than Penn State. So it's it's not looking good. It's not. And I... At the same time, I think there was somebody I saw on Twitter who was like, this is as you know terrible as NU fans have felt about Northwestern basketball since the year 2000. I was like, ah, that feels, no, feels aggressive. Sim- simmer down. Uh, so I like the, the stepping back, and, and I think I think the football team, and we often do this, right? We often use football as a, as a, a comparison point. 2013-2014, you know, going mi- – missing bowls – coming off of the Gator Bowl win we finally broke through that that uh that barrier and won a bowl game it had been 50 plus years it had been the the topic du jour every time Northwestern made won six games is this the year you get the monkey off your back blah 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 um and I'm not suggesting that there's like a hangover or a lack of drive or energy or whatever coming off of that but when you finally break through a long standing barrier, um, there's obviously some things that have to break your way. And there's a little bit of magic, right? Like tap horn to pardon. Um, I, so I, I'm not suggesting that the, that the NCAA basketball birth is in any way, shape or form responsible for the following two years that we've experienced. Um, or is it three now? No, it's two, 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 just two. Yeah. Um, the point is, is that we shouldn't be surprised. And when you look at how short the, the depth on the team is, when you look at what happened with Jordan Latham, um, it's not a surprise. And, and I don't, and I, and I think people need to be careful. Like I, this season's it's a, it's a disaster, right? Um, we are, we have, you know, completely whiffed on getting, you know, more out of the end of the law pardon era. Um, and, and even, even McIntosh's senior year, like it's, it's, it's been a catastrophic drop off. I, a lot of it's at the feet of the coaches. Um, but I mean, a couple things come into play, right? You've got, you've got Lathan, you've got a couple other guys that have left the program. Um, you've got a number of assistant coaches that have departed that never helps matters. And, and I'm not trying to make excuses here. My point is, is that this isn't, this isn't out of out of the realm of potential outcomes for for a season for a school like Northwestern that is still establishing itself and building up its depth. We don't have, you know, fifteen players that can that can get on the floor for eight minutes a night. It's it's not who we are. We're not Illinois. We're not Ohio State. We're not Michigan State. Um, so 
when you look at the, the facilities, the stadium, um, there's, yeah, this, this sucks and nobody wants what's happening right now. But I, I think there's some hyperbole getting thrown around about like the panic button and, and, and et cetera. I, I, I think the subtext is what people are really worried about is Collins jumping ship. Um, maybe that, that, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, <clears throat> the thing about Collins and I think, so I, for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, I put a piece up on the website this week that's kind of comparing the Collins era and the Carmody era with the main point being that they're pretty darn similar. And I think, and the intent there is neither to throw shade at Collins nor to sprinkle laurels all over Carmody. Um, It's just to say Carmody is maybe a little bit better than people maybe choose to remember his era and Collins is you know has so much of of what he's done is the luster of that one season you take that one season away and you know he's got a little way to go to get to where Carmody was and I think kind of looking at the stats and everything I think one of the people one of the things that people forget about Carmody was that he had a lot of let's say C plus seasons at Northwestern and Collins has basically given us an A a B and a bunch of C's is where we are right now and this one's going to be a C or a C minus um I would say the way we're heading right now My- minus yeah and and Carmody had five seasons that were C minus or lower Two of those you can hang on Kevin O'Neill, um, and deservedly so. Uh, you know, Carmody took over a train wreck of a program. Um, and to your point about the 2000 scuzz, it's like, yeah, like if people want to go back and think about 2000, that's fine, but don't hang that on Carmody. <laughs> that was, he inherited a team that was well, 0 and 16. That was the year before him, I think. Oh, right. So, uh, well, technically. yeah. Oh, yeah. The 0 and 16 year that was, that was, uh, O'Neill's last year. So to your yeah. point, it's like, that's what Carmody walked into. And, but he had a couple years in the middle of his tenure that were really bad. And then he also put together four straight NIT runs. And one, basically, like, one way to look at it is Collins has, you know, this is his sixth season. One of his seasons was unbelievable. We went to the dance. He had another season where we went eight and 10 in conference, perfectly respectable. His other four seasons, none of them are as good as any of those four Carmody NIT seasons. And it just goes to show, kind of to your early points, Guz, that it's it's like there's no miracle fix for making Northwestern an amazing program. And I think some of us were hoping that the tournament would be this magical point, you know, shift. And um, and it hasn't been that. And it still but, might be that. But hang on. I, I think you do need to... To stop for a second and say, you know, without the tournament, I don't think that we get the amount of donations and, you know, the fundraising that was needed to do the facilities upgrade. True. Um, Right. And that may bear uh, fruit. You know, Collins, to his credit, has been able to get the program or to get the, the community excited enough to open up their wallets and, you know, throw a ton of money 
and the new facilities really should start paying dividends. I mean, last year, you know, and we talked a lot about this last year was a disappointing year and you know, there was no energy in the team because they had to go out to all state arena this year. I, you know, it, it's hard to really put your finger on what went wrong. Um, other than the offense just had no other outlets besides law and pardon and law hasn't been himself since the turn of the, uh, since the calendar flipped over to January. So, you know, that, that, there, the future appears brighter now than it did under Carmody, where you know at, at this point in Carmody's run, there was no talk of you know redoing Welsh Shrine. There was no talk of new facilities, and that just wasn't there. So you, you see, it, it took a little while for Fitz to get to have the new facilities on for football really start paying dividends and we're seeing that now. So, you know, you, you th- you'd like to think, and maybe this is just me being a little more optimistic than uh, I have a right to be at this point, but you'd like to think that the new facilities should help, uh, you know, as in the next couple years, because I, I don't think, well, I don't think we get like a guy like Pete Nance and yeah, he hasn't had the kind of year this year that we hoped he would have had his freshman year, but you know, we'll have to see the development of these young guys who came in very highly touted. We'll see. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And I, and I think w- when you when you compare Carmody and and Collins, what immediately comes up is is recruiting. Carmody was a somewhat ambivalent recruiter. Uh, <laughs> You're being kind. Somewhat. <laughs> he didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> he didn't. He didn't put a ton of stock energy whatever you want to say into it collins is the exact opposite he has he has put that at the forefront of everything he's done game day in-game coaching right i'm probably gonna give the 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 ball to carmody on that front at this stage um development maybe tbd you can't you can't not look at what the staff did with Alex Ola and what they did have done with Derek pardon and not be impressed. Um, I don't feel like you saw guys in the Carmody era grow, make like those significant strides throughout their career. Um, so I, you know, I don't like to me though, that's the equation, right? You've got recruitment development and then execution slash in game program or, or in game coaching. And, we certainly traded one a little bit for the other, and the third is probably, you know, still a question mark at the stage. But um, Sam, to your point, I, you know, the other interesting thing is, and we've we've talked about this with Fitz and and the recruiting rankings that the football team has has pulled together. Like, we haven't had a lot of four star recruits in the last three or four years. Um, maybe the the big facility starts to change that. Maybe maybe the talent acquisition is is focused in a different spot. Um, there, you know, with with Collins, he has dramatically upped the recruiting rankings and the profile of the guys that we're bringing in, and we just we've seen some of that manifest on the floor, and some of it hasn't. And maybe he just needs more time, more hits. Yeah, and to your also to Sam's point too, facilities don't go away, and it is true that you know I don't want to undersell 
the making the tournament was a seismic event. I mean, it was a seismic event for all of us in the moment. Yes. None of us will forget that. It had intangible and tangible effects. Intangible in the hearts of every Northwestern fan and tangible in those facilities, which aren't going away. Um, right. Like Those are there for all future coaches and players and recruits to see and everything. And that's true. It's a tangible result. Um, I think one of the big takeaways right now, right, is um, it certainly is true that those facilities accepted. Um, we're kind of going to be hitting the reset button. We certainly did not, you know, to Scuzz's point earlier, we, we did not capitalize on you know with the exception of getting the facility built there was no immediate capitalization on that moment uh, instead it was kind of felt spent uh particularly with law and pardon and now we're going to be hitting the reset button next year this team that is struggling to get above 60 points uh game to game is going to lose 40 points of scoring um and that and then, you know, it's so it's going to be back to the drawing board. You're going to have all these young guys. You're going to have a, still a dearth of guards. There's probably going to be a grad transfer coming in because otherwise the math just doesn't work. Um, the um, And then we've got another big-time recruit, Robbie Barron, added to a group that already is several four-star guys, you know, who have real potential to develop. It's going to be all new again. It's going to be the true start over starts next year, and then we're going to see. You know, Carmody, as I mentioned in the piece, 13 years. And if you, if you photocopy this first six years of the Collins, um, tenure and you run it back the exact same way six years in a row, there's a heck of a lot of mediocrity in there, but there's also a second theoretical tournament appearance. And honestly, if at the end of 12 years of Chris Collins, there were two tourney berths in there, that would all be unprecedented. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a certain amount of measured expectations, but you can't argue we're not where we want to be right now. The immediate future does not look great, but yes, uh, based on what we've seen so far, we can still have reason for long-term optimism here. Well, it will be interesting to see what Collins kind of second, um, second team construction looks like you know you, you think about Carmody you, you started with the uh, Tavares Hardy Winston Blake uh, group it moved on to Vukusic and Davor Devancic and TJ Parker and those guys that beget the Kevin Koble era and then finished with the um, Sherna uh, Juice Drew Crawford group so like he had kind of four there were four separate eras of the of the Carmody era in my mind at least. Um we're about to enter era two of, of Collins. Maybe I guess maybe you could argue it's era three. Um I maybe give him a pass on the first couple of years and just start with when, when Law came in. But um point being like this is this'll be an interesting exercise in rebuilding and development and uh we know the recruiting piece is there, so we'll we'll see what comes of the rest. Uh, we did. We do need to talk about the women's team. Um, you know, we made mention of that uh, last week that we were going to, you know, kind of jump into the the women's team a little bit. Um, better season for the ladies, as, as at least as far as the record goes. Uh, will it be enough to to get a, to go dancing uh, come March? Uh, remains to be seen a little bit. I mean, tonight, um, as we're recording this on Thursday night, they. 
uh, did have to go into uh, Maryland, uh, ranked number 10 in the country, um, and you know, kind of took one on the chin uh, from the Terps. But you know, honestly, it's hard to uh, really say that that's a, a shocker. I mean, Maryland is really, really good. Um, but you know, as, as far as the as far as the ladies go, I mean, they've especially the, this past a couple of weeks, they've been playing pretty good basketball. I mean. Um, wins over Ohio State, Illinois, Nebraska. I mean, they won uh, tonight's tonight's game aside. They've won uh, five of the well, five of the last seven games they've won. Um, you know, sitting at fourteen and nine, fourth place in the Big Ten. Uh, four four of those were without Abby Schneid as well. Yeah, um, which is which is big. big power forward. This this team is significantly better than the men's team. It's it's like they're they have ways to score. Um, the overall talent is better and the way that it meshes together. And yeah, like this, if this team is full strength, um, it's, it's a good team. It's interesting kind of as a pivot out of the men's that we were talking about. The woman's, the woman, and, and we've talked about this before with the men because it's something that as, as a fan in the bubble of your own team can be difficult to quantify. The landscape of women's college basketball is way less favorable to the women than it is to the men right now. I mean, the Northwestern woman. Right now, the Big Ten's looking at getting six teams in to the tournament, um, in the women's group, and we're not considered one of those six. The men's, the men are looking at getting ten teams in from the Big Ten. Yeah. If there's that's, they're, well, they're saying, right? It's gonna be nine or ten. If the women were in the same boat, they'd be walking in. They're easily one of the 10 most deserving teams by far in the conference. Um, and right now, I think if anything, they're being hurt by non-con compared to a couple of the other Big Ten teams. Because like Scuzz said, they are fourth. But um, <clears throat> they're a better team than the men in a landscape where the Big Ten is just not in as advantageous of a place, I think, as it was compared to the men. And that's unfortunate because this is a good team. Yeah, so I, I was digging into the bracketology a bit earlier today. So Northwestern's sixth in the conference right now. They're seven and five, tied with Purdue. They don't have a lot of big wins outside of conference. They 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 hammered Duke uh, second game of the year. Uh, Duke's Duke was rated at the time. That's that's pretty good. Um, but a loss a loss to DePaul, a loss to Marquette. Those were the other two ranked teams that they played non-con. Um, I don't see any really bad losses. They got a loss a three point loss uh, to Pitt. They've got um, a loss to Kansas, uh, and then in conference, um, in conference, nothing is really a problem except maybe they lost to Minnesota three weeks ago. That's that's kind of the worst one. So the resume is not horrible, but they don't they don't have they have a win over Indiana, uh, they have a win over Michigan State. That was the big one. Um, close loss to Rutgers. Close loss to Purdue close loss to Michigan, but they, they seem to be missing, you know, a, a second signature win, if you will. And like I said, they're, so there's tied for six in the conference. Michigan is, is a slot below them and has virtually an identical, um, overall record. But when you look at RPI and this is where I think the problem is. So Iowa Rutgers, Maryland, Michigan state top 25 in RPI, Indiana slots in it at 40 Purdue's just, just a couple slots below them. 
Then there's Michigan at 60, and Northwestern's all the way down at 88. Oof. And that's the problem. We just haven't had the big wins to push that RPI enough up to be in the conversation. Michigan is, is in the first four out right now on ESPN's Bracketology. And like you said, John, Northwestern is nowhere on the radar. Now, they've got some opportunities. Um, they finished the season at Iowa, number 16 Iowa. Um, they've got an at Purdue. They've got an at Minnesota coming up. Um, and a home game against Indiana. So those those are some opportunities to get some decent wins, but you almost feel like they need a little help right now. Um, I guess they've got, what, one, two, three, four, five, six games left on the schedule, plus another couple uh, potential in the in the Big Ten tournament. Maybe they can get to, to 20 and 11 and put themselves on the bubble. We'll see what happens. Um, but... They they have been playing well well of late and, and having Abby Shy back uh, and healthy is is pretty huge for their team and especially their offense. Um, she's the third leading scorer on the squad, so we'll I, uh, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I think the women really do have something to play for here. I mean, to to what you were saying, like if yeah. they get smoking hot, they can play their way in, like for sure. Like the path is there. I mean, like I said, six games. They take five out of six, win a couple in the tournament. I think that's probably good enough. Especially like you said, if Iowa was one of them, that road win on Iowa heading into the into the tournament, like it's there. Um, odds are probably against them, but this is probably a team that makes the women's NIT. Um, and and again, they're our best basketball team. There's no doubt about that. One of the other things too, in comparison to. I don't know. I feel like sometimes we're guilty, maybe because we're so football focused, maybe of being a little bit over charitable with the basketball team when it comes to the development of major recruits. Um, It is true that you have guys who are four and five star recruits who come into college basketball and then develop over time into major uh, players. But basketball tends to not work that way. Those guys are supposed to come in and be awesome right away. We look at a guy like Pete Nance and see what he could be, and he may eventually develop into a dominating player. But with major recruits, the norm is generally that they come in and perform at a high level right away. This is all a way of saying that Lindsey Pulliam is how it's supposed to go. (laughs) This is someone who is a top 60 recruit in the nation, a monster recruit, who came in and day one from the women's team has been like, yeah, I'm running this show uh, from the guard spot and I'm just going to own things. And that's what she is. She is a dominant all Big Ten level player. And she's a sophomore. She's been that way. She's going to be one of the best players in the Big Ten for the next two years. That's the way it's supposed to go with top recruits. And, um, you know, so it's like Collins is like a guy like Robbie Barron. A guy like that, you know, if he comes in and develops into something over time, great. But big recruits are supposed to come in and make an impact. And Lindsey Pulliam is the model for what it's supposed to be. Um, big time recruit shows up, is like, yep, give me the damn ball. And then just like makes it work. So that's another positive with the women's team is, you know, this is a decent team that still has two more years of her to look forward to. Well, and, and McCune has been, been been bringing in decent classes. Right. I remember we, we looked through last year's recruits and we're, we're pretty impressed where they laid at where they landed. I think we had a top a top flight guard though that ended up decommitting. Um, the only the only bummer for this team, uh, thinking about next year and those next two years of, of having Pulliam, is that uh, our center uh, Kunai Akpana is graduating this year. Um, she I think was she the one that transferred in. Uh, last season and was kind of a revelation for Northwestern. 
I seem to remember that, but she's a second leading scorer. She's averaging almost two blocks and two steals per game. Um, she's just outstanding on the defensive end, uh, but she's the only senior. So obviously that's a big loss, but we're bringing back a, a deep team. There's, there's 10 players that average double digit minutes this season. This team is, is kind of proving some of the stuff that we've been hoping and begging for on the, on the men's side. So uh, even if they can't ultimately get it done this, this year, I think they're set up uh, really well for next season uh, to make a run. Yeah, and to the point, too, is like as our malaise with the men's team grows, the women have nothing but high-pressure big-time games from here on out. It's like six games that really matter, followed by the tournament, followed by probably the NIT. Um, there's a lot but, of meaningful but possi- games. But still possibly the, the but possibly the, Oh, but possibly the tournament, absolutely. So it's all big-time, high-pressure, meaningful games from the ladies from here on out, and that's something to be excited about. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, just to kind of put a bow on, on on the women's basketball and kind of take a look a little bit forward as we uh, get into spring sports, um, women's lacrosse coming in ranked seventh overall as, as the season uh, gets underway tomorrow um, as they take on Louisville at uh, at at the brand new Ryan Fieldhouse. I mean, you know, how what is what is the second best lacrosse field in America <laughs> and how big is the gap between that field and where these ladies are going to be playing this game like come on i mean the i the fact I, that i wonder how bit i wonder how big of a deal this will be for northwestern recruiting if you like you just think about what we've talked about in the past with baseball and softball and i know lacrosse is different but when there are players that are looking at you know what it's like in mid february in North Carolina versus what, it, or or even in Maryland versus what it's like in Chicago, and the opportunity to play inside of Ryan Fieldhouse. That's that feels like um, a really nice uh, chip for for the women's lacrosse team to play as they're recruiting. And plus, you know, when when the weather gets nice, they can just go outside to was, the Lakefront Stadium. I was going to say the second best field is probably our other field. <laughs> we may have the two best. It's it's pretty awesome. I mean, it's oh. it is two powerhouse venues, deservedly so for our powerhouse women's lacrosse team. They they deserve it 110. percent But it's pretty sweet. I've I mean I I'm thinking I I want to get out there to watch one of these lacrosse games at Ryan Fieldhouse. It must be awesome. Absolutely, I I I would love to do that. And you know, maybe we can bring our girls to uh to a game. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, finally, before we go, uh, yesterday was the, the second, uh, football signing day. Um, you know, we, we talked about it, you know, kind of a, you know, not really a big, no, no big drama there. And, you know, as we brought in the, the running back that we talked about, um, you know, so the 19 guys uh, as part of the, the class of 19. So, um, you know, no big surprises, no big you know, like I say, no drama with the signing day yesterday. No, it was all pretty straightforward. I mean, we've we've talked about Evan Hall and everything else. I think one of the things that was interesting in kind of the, the different recaps um, and a lot of the talk from Louis Vacare and others about lack of fanfare with the class and, and almost like our rebellious, you know, about that. I'd be like, well, 
the rankings aren't good, but A, a lot of that's funny math, which, Scuzz, you have talked about extensively, um, just the funny numbers involved in recruiting rankings. But um, but also just that Northwestern, we know the kind of guys we've got. We know it's a good group. We know we're going to be able to develop these guys. Um, I thought it was kind of funny that uh, Louis, in, in his piece, mentioned kind of sideways – um, said it without kind of saying it that our highest rated recruit is Michael Jancy, and Michael Jancy is also our only Under Armour All American, even though he was fan voted in, and that part of that five point seven may be related to the fact that he got into that game, um, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing to kind of sideways acknowledge because it's true. It's like. The guy's an Under Armour All-American. What, you're not going to rate him as, like, a high three-star guy? Which is to say nothing against Jancy. Like, I've watched his film. He's a predator. Um, he reminds me of a linebacker version of Travis Willick. But um, I just thought that that was kind of funny and um, an interesting acknowledgement of kind of the funny math that exists, not just at Rivals, but at all recruiting sites, with putting these classes together and the fact that Northwestern's always going to come up short in ranking systems like this. So I've, I've two kind of dovetail comments from that, um, that are not Northwestern related. So one is, um, regarding my, they're not my least favorite college football team, but my, the least, my least favorite coach in college. And that's, that's, that's Dabo <laughs> and Clemson interestingly, and I did not realize this, but Clemson generally doesn't sign big classes. And as a result, their recruiting rankings have not been, have their their ranking every year on rivals has not belied the level of talent that they are bringing in every season. I thought that was interesting. I think I picked that up from um, Stu Mandel and Bruce Feldman. We're talking about that. They're often in the teens uh, or in the high twenties over the last six years. They've been as high as, you know, number six, number eight, those sorts of things. But uh, a lot of it is because they're not doing the Alabama thing and bringing in 35 guys that they're going to whittle down to 28. Um, they're also they also tend to have a little bit less uh, in the way of players leaving early or, or turnover on their team. So they're not um, activating the transfer portal as much. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll give Dabo some credit for that. I guess um, the yeah, other one I know I, I know made... I know how much that hurts you to give Dabo any credit whatsoever. <laughs> it, it, it stings the nostrils. Because um, <laughs> when there was only one set of footsteps, that's when Dabo was carrying you. Just so you know. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other one is just a really, a really interesting thing I heard earlier today. Um, oh, I have a third comment about recruit about national signing day. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just going to, I'm just going to run on here. Um, but the second one is I heard an interview with Jimbo Fisher, uh, today also by, uh, Feldman and, um, and Stu Mandel. And they, they asked him about, you know, as he brings in players, how does he get them ready? Those, you know, uh, the idea of, of developing talent, et cetera. And he talked about how important it is um, to uh, to pay attention to the details and to execute the fundamentals. And he said, we, we've we been asking our players, um, or, or he said something like, we asked our players the other day at practice, like, why did the New England Patriots win the Super Bowl? And they had a bunch of answers. And he said, no, it's because somebody lined up offsides in the AFC Championship game. Um, and just like the, the point of that being, you got to get the basics right. Um, and this brings me to Florida state (laughs) who whiffed on signing a quarterback recruit for the second year in a row, who has lost at least two 
quarterbacks to off-field, um, horrible off-field issues, I might add, uh, domestic violence situations. Uh, or maybe maybe not domestic violence, but um, violence against women uh, situations, and um, is now is just in a in a desert of 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 quarterbackless um, wandering where they've got uh, they've got one they've got the freshman that played last year um, is that Blackman, and then um, and then some a transfer from Louisville who might not be eligible, and that's about it. It's kind of looking like the Minnesota quarterback situation at <laughs> Florida State. Um, I, it's it's crazy. I was like, it's to your point about basics. I feel like maybe Willie Taggart's not understanding the basics as they pertain to FSU, which is you're supposed to let the guys get away with everything. Didn't Jimbo square him away on this before he left? To be like, Willie, you're supposed to push it all under the rug, or you'll have no quarterbacks. Um, didn't he I, just hire uh, Kendall Bryles? Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> well, no. Oh, gross. It just, it gets, it gets worse. <laughs> we, we, were, we were heading towards such a nice, uh, such a positive finish to this. You had to, you had to go there. Oh, and he even said, uh, he even said Kendall Bryles is quote, a perfect fit at Florida State. Oh, of course he is. Oh, of course God. He is. oh Lord. All right. Well, uh, Let's go ahead and leave it there, unless you guys have uh, any final thoughts before we go. Now nah, I kind of shared my. All right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. Uh, head to our website, westlotpirates.com, where you can leave comments and questions. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter, at Westlot Pirates. You can call our voicemail line, 847-231-CATS. That's 847-231-2287. And email the show, westlotpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics and look for us in the West Lot of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. John McComb and Eric Skousby and Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.